Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. As I was reflecting upon what I could say this morning as we begin a new semester in the year 2017, uh, the Lord drew my heart to Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. Uh, the way of the wise versus the way of the fool. And actually, to get verses 24 through 29 in proper context, you need to read the prior paragraph of verses 21 22 and 23. So though I will not expound those verses, I'm going to begin our scripture reading in verse 21. You'll notice that verse 21 starts with the word everyone, as does verse 24. You'll also note the emphasis upon doing the will of God. Verse 21 of Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Everyone then, note the connection, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell and great the Greek word megale. We get our word mega from it. It was a mega fall. Verse 28. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds, they were astonished at his teachings. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Every one of us in this room today has what is called a source of authority that informs and shapes what is also called a worldview. Uh, this authority influences the way we think, uh, the way we act, the way we live. In fact, your worldview may even impact and be decisive in how you die. Uh, Norman Geisler, a Christian philosopher, accurately points out, and I quote, the truth is that a worldview is like uh, colored glasses. It colors everything at which we look. It is a grid through which one views all of life. As such, it helps form our thoughts, our values, our decisions. The tragedy is that most people do not even know what their worldview is, how they got it, and how important it is in their lives. And when we think about this issue of how we get our worldview, we always come back again to the issue of authority, that which we trust and that which we choose to follow. 
And though we could get sophisticated in our analysis this morning, basically I believe you can boil down your source of authority into one of four categories. The first one, of course, is reason. You do what you do because you think. You're the analytical type, and so you like to gather the data, you like to analyze it, and then you do what you do, and you make your decisions because you think this is the right thing to do. Perhaps the most popular source of authority in the Western world today, and certainly in America, is the authority of experience. And people that operate from this source of authority do what they do because they feel. Uh, this, by the way, is where the very uh, influential category of peer pressure, I think, would be located. And so you do what you do because you simply feel. Uh, you're kind of a, a utilitarian type. You feel that good results will come at the end of what you feel is the wisest and best decision. A third potential source of authority is tradition. Of course, this is one that's very popular in too many Baptist churches where we do what we do because we've always done it this way. It worked well a decade ago. It worked well a century ago. And if it worked well then, then certainly it must work well today. But there is a final avenue of authority, which of course is the one that I would advocate and the one that I would pray would be your source of authority. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that we don't learn from reason. I'm not saying that we don't learn from our experiences. I'm not saying that we should not take into consideration our traditions, but this final source of authority, revelation, is that which affirms, I think the way I think, I do the things I do, I live the way I live, because God's word says so. And this, I believe, is the only reliable source of authority and is also the avenue whereby we actually gain not only knowledge, but we have the ability to gain wisdom. And when we think about the theme of wisdom, I love the clarity that is brought to this subject by the half-brother of our Lord, uh, the Apostle James. James, in chapter 3 of his letter, contrasts basically two ways of life or two avenues of wisdom. He speaks, first of all, of a wisdom that is from above, that comes, of course, from God. And then he speaks in contrast to a wisdom that comes from below that he says sometimes has its origin not only in man, it sometimes even has its origin in Satan himself. Just listen very quickly. I'm not asking you to turn there, but in my notes, I've listed in comparative categories the wisdom that's from above and the wisdom that's from below. Listen how different these two lists are. Wisdom from above is characterized by 11 things. Good conduct, meekness, purity, it's peaceable. It's gentle, it's open to reason, it's full of mercy, it's full of good fruits, it's impartial, it is sincere, and it produces a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by peacemakers, which again reminds us of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes found in Matthew chapter 5. In contrast, the wisdom from below, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, boastful, lies, earthly, unspiritual, demonic, promotes disorder, pursues every vile practice. That's quite a difference, isn't it? 
And the source of authority from which you gain wisdom is going to determine whether you walk down one path or whether you walk down the path of another. Now, James is not the first person to simplify life in this twofold manner. In fact, Jesus did it first, as we've just read in Matthew chapter seven, and it would not surprise me in the least if James got his insights from his brother and what he taught us at the end of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7, verses 24 through 29 conclude what many believe to be the greatest sermon ever preached. It certainly is one of the greatest sermons that's ever been preached. It also provides a very appropriate conclusion to the entirety of chapter 7, where Jesus and Matthew draw again a number of contrasts, all, I believe, in the context of helping us understand how to get wisdom. Just note very quickly, in verses 13 and 14, he draws a contrast between the narrow gate of life and the wide gate of destruction. In verses 15 through 20, he draws a contrast between the good tree of fruit and the bad tree of fruitlessness. In verses 21 through 23, he draws a contrast between the genuine confession of the obedient versus the false profession of the disobedient. In our passage, he draws a contrast between the solid rock of wisdom and the shifting sands of foolishness. And then finally, he concludes the sermon with an editorial comment, drawing a contrast between the teachings of the master and the teachings of men. Now, as we prepare to launch into this text, I think it's imperative for us to define this crucial word, and that is the word wisdom. What do we mean, and what does the Bible mean when it talks about this issue of wisdom? Well, several years ago, as I was reflecting on this and doing some reading this, I came to kind of my own definition that provides just a very simple statement as to what I think wisdom can be boiled down to, and it is simply this. Wisdom is the ability to look at life as God sees life and then respond accordingly. Wisdom is the ability to see life as God sees life and then to respond accordingly. So as we begin to walk through these verses that contrast the way of the wise with the way of the fool, it's very easy uh, to divide the text into two paragraphs, and it's also very easy to divide each of those paragraphs into two movements as well. So note with me, number one, in verses 24 through 27, that the Bible says, build your life on the strong foundation of God's word. Look again what it says. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. Jesus, of course, was the master teacher, and one of the characteristics of a good teacher is that they can tell easy, simple stories that contain profound truth and that are easy to memorize. This, of course, is a story that almost everyone who's ever read the Bible will immediately and quickly recall. It contrasts two men two men at least initially who look very similar and who do very similar things, two men who build a house. There's really only one difference that is noted in the text between the wise man and the foolish man, and that is this, the foundation upon which they built their house. Jesus teaches us, first of all, that one man wisely chose to build his house on a rock-solid foundation. This wise man built his house on the Petron, the Petra, the rock, the rock-solid foundation. Unfortunately, in contrast, 
Uh, the other one foolishly chose to build his house on shifting sand, a unstable foundation. And again, as we work our way through the text, the end result could not have been more different and consequential. And in each instance, now this is the point, in each instance, the issue is this. How do you respond to the words of Jesus? Or more broadly, how do you respond to the word of God? In other words, it's very, very clear it is not enough just to hear the word. It's not even enough just to study the word. It is not enough to get a bachelor's degree in biblical studies, to get a master of divinity in biblical studies, or even to get a PhD. If all you are is a collector of knowledge, you are a fool. I didn't say that. Jesus did. So he wants us to understand how important it is that we have the proper response to his word. So he tells us in verses 24 and 25 that we should simply know the word and obey the word and thereby be wise. He begins, everyone. Jesus intends for this story to apply to any and to all who hear his words. And that word, everyone, makes that very evident. Let me also say this, Jesus never sets his words in contrast to the word. Some people will read that phrase and say, well, he's talking about his words and his words are more authoritative than the Bible's words. And so we set them apart from one another. That could not be further from what Jesus was trying to say. Go back to Matthew chapter five, verses 17 through 20. And there he tells us very clearly, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And in fact, not a letter or a part of a letter will pass away until all of it is fulfilled. Now, Jesus certainly had a different hermeneutic than did the Pharisees and the scribes and so on. But Jesus affirmed without any hesitation he affirmed without any reservation the full authority, the full reliability, and the full sufficiency of Scripture. There is no difference in terms of authority when it comes to the Bible than the words of Jesus from, say, the words of Obadiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah, or you pick any other biblical author, and Jesus is affirming in Matthew, these words are just as authoritative as mine. After all, who inspired those words but he through the Holy Spirit? Jesus then notes the qualities of, two qualities in particular of the wise man. First, he hears the words, and of course, in the context, it would be the Sermon on the Mount. And secondly, he then is characterized by obedience. He hears the words of mine, verse 24, and he continually, it's a present tense verb, he continually does them. Again, uh, Bible scholars have noted that the book of James uh, sounds a whole lot uh, like the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I suspect that that is because he was there on that day and heard his brother deliver this magisterial message. Well, if you go to James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, it sounds a whole lot like a commentary on the passage that we're looking at this morning. Just listen to what James says there in verse 22. Be doers of the word not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, well, I'll give you another story. He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself 
He goes away. And at once he forgets what he was like. In contrast, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law that sets us free, the law of liberty, and perseveres, now listen, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And in fact, my definition of wisdom, if you'll go back to it a moment ago, includes both a knowledge content and an action content. Wisdom, again, is the ability to see life from God's perspective, to see life as God sees life, and then to respond, to act, to obey accordingly. And so to hear God's word and then obey these words, Jesus says, is to be a wise home builder. You construct your house on a rock solid foundation. Now, why are you deemed to be wise if you do this? Well, because a storm's coming. And it is not just the storms of life, though certainly they could be contained by way of application, but I agree with those who believe he is talking about the storm of judgment. He is talking about the eschatological day of the Lord when you will stand before the Lord and either having stood on the rock solid foundation of the word stand or having set your life upon the sand and experiencing a tragic, horrible, destructive death. He says there in verse 25, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, they beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on a rock. Uh, David Platt agrees with this particular perspective in his very fine commentary on Matthew. He says it this way, we must hear Jesus when he says that there is a storm coming, he is not talking about what we so often identify as the storms of life. Those storms are real and they are painful. Storms like cancer, divorce, and losing a loved one. And the Bible certainly addresses them. However, Jesus is referring to a cataclysmic reality, a final and utterly devastating storm of the future judgment of God. And our colleague here at this school, Dr. Chuck Quarles, who by the way has written an absolutely superb book on the Sermon on the Mount, notes this about the word wise that appears in our text. The word wise appears a total of seven times in Matthew and most frequently describes one who wisely prepares for the coming of the Messiah through faithful service and uh, obedient living. In other words, Jesus is telling us that the storm of God's judgment is coming and it's coming for everyone. So the initial question you need to ask of yourself is, am I ready? And on that day, will I stand because I have built my life on the gospel and on the rock solid truth of God's word? Let me extend that by way of application because I think our text implies that at the end, are you also actively involved in helping others be prepared for that eschatological day? We've already talked this morning about the emphasis that we give to the Great Commission. Are you participating? Are you active? Are you someone that indeed is giving your life to getting the gospel to the nation so that they might likewise be prepared for that eschatological day of judgment? Again, we need to be reminded that revelation brings responsibility. 
The more we know, the greater is our accountability before the Lord. And we need to be reminded in a practical sense that what we believe, yes, is going to impact how we live, but the reverse is also true. How we live is also going to impact what we believe. I can remember several years ago when I had a former student call me. Actually, I called him uh, because I had performed the wedding ceremony uh, of this man and his wife. They were Bible college graduates. Uh, They had been in our church. Uh, I had done their premarital counseling and I had then performed their wedding. And uh, just, this is just an aside. When I perform your wedding, I also make you sign a wedding covenant. If you don't sign the wedding covenant, that's fine. I'm not gonna do your wedding. So you sign a wedding covenant. And at the end of the wedding covenant, it says something like this. If our marriage ever gets in trouble, we give you our word that we will contact you so that you might have the chance to help us work through our difficulties. Well, they didn't do that. And I discovered that they were separated and they were now planning on getting a divorce. And so I did what I told them I would do. Uh, I called them, I would have gone to see them, but they lived in Dallas, Texas, whereas I was living here. And so I called them and I said, hey, uh, Richard, what is going on with you and and Janie? And uh, he said, well, hey, Dr. Aiken, I didn't expect you to call. I said, well, I told you I would, and you lied to me because you gave me your word that you'd call me if your marriage got in trouble, and you didn't call, and so you're a liar, and I'm not happy about it. That got off to a really good start, by the way, but. (laughs) So then I said, what's going on? And he began to just rail on what a horrible, awful wife uh, Janie had become. And by the way, I talked to her too, And she had the same opinion of her husband. And so I said, well, you know what? I don't really give a rip about any of that. Uh, You gave your word when I performed your wedding ceremony that you would stay faithful to her in sickness and in health for better, for worse, till death do you part. And I said, Richard, you know furthermore what the Bible says about all of this. And his response was, I'll never forget as long as I live. He says, well, I don't interpret the Bible like you do anymore. And I said, really? I said, well, that's fine. How do you interpret the Bible now? And all he said was, not like you anymore, and I don't want to talk about this anymore. Now, my point is this. It is true what you believe will impact how you live. But you listen to me. How you live will also impact what you believe because you have to live with yourself. And if you begin to walk down a path of sin and rebellion and disobedience to the clear teachings of the Bible, don't be surprised if there also comes a time in your life when you begin to jettison and kick to the curb this authority because the way you live and respond to God's word is going to impact the way you look at life and the way that you think and it is going to influence this thing we call a worldview. And so the Bible teaches us that those who are wise will both hear the word and obey the word. And when eschatological judgment comes, they will be prepared. We sang about it just a moment ago, the wonderful hymn by John Rippon, how firm a foundation ye saints of the Lord is laid for your faith where? In his excellent word. 
So first of all, Jesus talks about those who know the word, obey the word, and are wise. But then he says, secondly, in verses 26 and 27, there are those who know the word, disobey the word, and they can only be characterized by the word a fool. Verse 26, everyone, no one is excluded. Everyone who hears these words of mine. So they heard the word, they've been taught the word, and yet they do not do them. They will be like a moron. It's the Greek word that is used here, a moron. He builds his house on the sand and the same rain fell and the same floods came and the same winds blew and the same winds beat against this house and it fell and great megala was the fall. So a massive contrast isn't there between the wise man and the foolish man. Now, here's what I want you to understand at this point. On the surface, at least initially, there doesn't seem to be any difference between the two. In fact, John MacArthur notes there are at least four similarities between the wise man and the foolish man. Number one, both builders heard the gospel, the same sermon, the words of Christ. Secondly, both proceeded to build a house after having heard the same message. Thirdly, both apparently built their houses in the same general location. And finally, both built houses that were very similar, at least they were outwardly questioned. What then is the difference? Answer their foundation and their obedience to the word. The foolish man heard the words of Christ, but verse 26, he does not do them. He's a hearer only deceiving himself. He is the guy or the gal who comes to the gathering of God's people week after week, month after month, year after year. He hears the gospel taught, he hears the word taught over and over and over and over, but he doesn't obey it. Oh, there may be some superficial adherence that he gives to it again on a very shallow level, but deep down in his soul, deep down where it really matters, there's not a heart geared toward obedience. There's not a heart that longs to please the Lord. And as I said earlier, I've known people with bachelor's degrees, MDivs and PhDs who've never been transformed and made brand new by the word of God. No, this guy thinks that because he has a form of godliness, he's safe. When in actuality, the Bible tells us he is headed toward a horrible and eternal destruction. You see, building on sand equals disobeying the word. It's foolish and it makes you out to be a fool. You build on sand, you're disobedient to the gospel, judgment day arrives and you are not ready. And the text says, great was the fall of it. Now I've made the argument that Jesus is not so much talking about the storms that come in our life like cancer and like divorce and like the loss of a loved one, that I believe that it is better to understand all of this in the context of the end time eschatological judgment. And again, Dr. Quarles was very helpful to me as he pointed out the imagery of the storm in the Old Testament and how it is used over and over and over for eschatological end time judgment. He noted a couple of texts. Listen to this one, Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 19 and 20. Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. 
It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until it is executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand. You'll have wisdom. You will understand it clearly. Jeremiah 25, 32. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation and a great storm is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. So you spend a lifetime hearing God's word, but you're deceived, you're a fool because you don't obey it. You thought that showing up on Sunday and listening was enough. You thought that a casual allegiance and a convenient, comfortable Christianity would suffice on the day of judgment and you will discover on that day you were dead wrong. Charles Spurgeon, in his inimical way, says it so well. Yet though he was industrious, this is the man who built the house on sand, he was foolish and the crash was terrible. The sound was heard afar. The overflow was final and irretrievable. Many heard the fall and many more saw the ruins as they remained a perpetual memorial of the results of that folly which is satisfied with hearing but neglects the doing. In Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 7 reminds us the wicked are overthrown and are no more but the house of the righteous will stand and Proverbs 14:11 adds the house of the wicked will be destroyed but the tent of the upright it will flourish build your life on the strong foundation of God's word. And then secondly, and more shortly, listen to the teachings of the Son of God and not the wisdom of man, verse 28 and verse 29. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The wonderful Scottish Presbyterian Sinclair Ferguson is uh, spot on when he says, and I quote, Jesus did not preach the Sermon on the Mount in order to be admired for his homiletical skills. He preached it to produce obedience. And these two verses give us a wonderful and fitting summary of the Sermon on the Mount. They kind of function as bookends with chapter 5, verse 1, and verse 2, where you see a, a clear connection between the beginning of the sermon and the end of the sermon. Now, let me point out, first of all, what the verses do not say, because I must have read a dozen commentaries on this, and almost every commentator pointed out the same thing. These verses give no word or indication of the hearers being wise obeyers. The response of the crowd, it appears, is again like the fool who builds his house on the sand, more superficial than substantive. In other words, it's only skin deep. Apparently, their hearts have not been changed. And again, I can imagine no greater tragedy than for someone to meet Jesus, hear his words, walk away astonished and amazed, but still unchanged. Two closing observations. First, 
The words of Jesus are amazing. Verse 28, when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. The crowds were astonished. The word means to be uh, amazed. In fact, Eugene Peterson colorfully paraphrases when Jesus concluded his address, the crowd burst into applause. They had never heard teaching like this, which of course, again, is a reoccurring phrase that we see in Matthew. Furthermore, Grant Osmond points out that the tense of the verb is an imperfect verb, so it depicts an ongoing feeling of wonder as they went home. They heard him, they were blown out of their minds, and as they were going home, they kept talking about what an incredible communicator he is. What an amazing message he gave us. Their amazement continued for quite some time. The source of their amazement, his teachings. Verse 28 focuses more on the content. Verse 29, more on the manner in which he taught. And again, I cannot help but recall the words that we find in John's gospel in chapter 7 and verse 46. No one ever spoke like this man. So his words were amazing. But here's the way that Matthew ends, and it's a very important ending. The words of Jesus have authority. Verse 29 makes it clear that his words stand in stark contrast to the religious scholars of the day, the scribes, their spiritual guides. The text says he taught them as one who had exousia, who had authority, and not as one of the scribes. Now, if you do your study of uh, New Testament history, you know that most of the scribes, the teachers of the law, operated with a derivative authority. Uh, they would cite a well-known rabbi, and they would say, well, I'm on good ground because rabbi so-and-so said this. And these, of course, were respected predecessors of the current rabbis, and this is how they would then bring weight to their authority. I'm sitting right over here, a bunch of PhD students that are on our campus right now, and when they write a paper, just like when you write a paper, you're expected to have a bibliography, and you're expected to use footnotes, and you're expected to use uh, scholars and use people who can validate and affirm and support the argument that you're making in a paper. That's all and fine in a seminary college context, but Jesus didn't operate that way. He didn't have a bibliography. He didn't use footnotes. You say, well, then I'm not going to use them because Jesus didn't use them. Well, you're not Jesus, all right? So you're going to use them. He was his own bibliography. He was his own footnotes. His authority resided in himself. Even the liberal New Testament scholar George Streaker gets it right here when he says, because the authority of Jesus is named as the reason for the astonishment, a specifically Christological assertion is being, involved, being invoked here. And the fact of the matter is, when you consider what is said here with how the gospel ends, there's no question about that because how does the gospel end? Jesus stands up and says, all what authority is given to me in heaven and in earth and therefore you go and you make disciples of all the ethnes all the nations of the earth his authority resided in himself because the one who is speaking here is none other than God and Charles Spurgeon again says it so well he spoke royally the truth itself was its own argument and demonstration. He taught prophetically as one inspired from above. Men felt that when he spoke, he spoke after the manner of one sent of God. It was no fault. Now listen, 
it was no fault on their part to be astonished. But it was a grave crime to be astonished and nothing more. No man ever spoke like this man. No man ever taught with the authority of this man. In fact, we know from the Gospels, no one ever lived like this man, died like this man, or rose from the dead like this man. In fact, Jesus is the quintessential model of the wise man who lives his life on the rock. That's why Dr. Shaddix read a moment ago, Matthew chapter 4, because in each of the temptations brought against him by the evil one, what did he say? It is written, it is written, it is written. It is the wise person who will hear the word and obey them. It is the fool who hears the word and rejects them. It is the wise man who will stand on a rock solid foundation at judgment but it is the fool who will only experience a tragic and great fall. I plead with you, my brothers and sisters, as you enter into your studies this semester and as you continue your studies over a lifetime, I plead with you, don't be just a hearer of the word. Be both a hearer and a doer and let the Lord bless you in what you do. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this very simple story that reminds us of a very profound truth. It's not enough just to hear your word. You've called us to both hear and obey. And Lord, you are indeed one who teaches with authority. As you yourself said, all authority has been given to you in heaven and on earth. And because you indeed have all authority, we should listen carefully to what you tell us to do. And so we hear your word, Lord, go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, Lord, may we not only be hearers of that word, may we be faithful doers, going wherever it is that you choose to send us, delivering the message that you have plainly given us, being obedient to the word of God, knowing that that is the place of blessing and that is the place that will prepare us for the day when we stand before you. All this for your glory, we ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.com. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.